0: During the season of Eastertide, uh, which will last until Pentecost Sunday on June 9th, we will be hearing stories of individual Easter people. Most of these stories will come to us from the book of Acts, which talks to us about how the early church formed and the first people spread the good news of the gospel. But this morning's text comes from the gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Allison Schmidt is an Olympic swimmer from Michigan. In the 2012 London Games, she won five medals, three of them gold. But after she returned home, she sank into a deep depression that she could not shake. She grew more and more isolated until finally she went to see a therapist who diagnosed her with post-Olympic Depression. Apparently, many world class athletes who become hyper focused on achieving their Olympic dreams suffer an intense emotional drop after the Games, whether or not they win any medals. Sports psychologists say that the best way to avoid a post Olympic crisis is for athletes to build a solid identity apart. From their sport, an identity that will help them feel like more than just someone who once competed in the Olympics. We can imagine that after Jesus' crucifixion and the discovery of the empty tomb, the disciples experienced something like a post Olympic crash. Although they seem to have had pretty solid identities before they met Jesus, after a roller coaster ride of highs and lows for the three years they followed him, surely they were struggling to figure out what came next. Just one day after the terror and amazement they felt upon discovering the empty tomb and Jesus' body gone, they had locked themselves away behind closed doors out of fear that they might meet the same fate Jesus did. If they lay low long enough, maybe they can eventually return to the lives they lived before. And the fact that they'd left everything to follow a teacher who died ingloriously on a cross could be their dirty little secret. Frank Warren is someone who collects people's secrets, but he doesn't keep them secret. Warren created and runs the website postsecret.com, where people anonymously send in, on a simple postcard, a secret about themselves. In a talk about the postsecret concept and its surprising popularity... Warren explained how the sharing of these anonymous secrets often ripples out in unpredictable and even wonderful ways. Years ago, someone sent in a secret on a postcard, which featured a picture of a smiling couple, and over the picture was written the secret, "'I am both scared and relieved that you know my fears.'" A few days after Frank posted this card on the website, which he happened to do years after he got it, he received this message from The Secret's author. Dear Frank, my wife found the post secret you put up this Sunday, and I was a little scared, but she cried and told me it was the sweetest thing she has ever been a part of. I sent it to you before we got married. We just celebrated our seventh wedding anniversary last October, and now we have an amazing four-year-old who completes our beautiful family. I am no longer scared that she knows all my secrets. We all have secrets, some that we may never share. We all know what it's like to be afraid of others learning our secrets, even while we long to be fully known. We all have our secrets, and for many of us here in church, one secret we tend to keep to ourselves is that even after the empty tomb, we still have our doubts about Jesus, about who he was, about how he lived and died and rose again about what that all means. Last week, in our Easter service, we experienced all kinds of things that can help shore up our faith. The incredible music, the beautiful flowers, the crowd of people, that Easter buzz that was undeniably in the air as we worshiped together. But I suspect most of us came down off that Easter high pretty quickly. We went home to our families with their complicated dynamics. We went back to work with its conflicts and demands. We faced the reality of our lives, whether that reality is one of illness, addiction, loneliness, stress, or boredom. Within days, if not hours, our doubts and questions about whether Easter has any real impact on our lives at all may have been ringing louder in our heads than the shouts of, Christ is risen on Easter morning in a full-to-capacity sanctuary. In his book, Reaching for the Invisible God, Philip Yancey argues that there is no reason— to hide our doubts and questions. He believes that doubt is the skeleton in the closet of faith that needs to be brought out into the open and exposed for what it is, the hard structure on which the living tissue of our faith can grow. Instead of locking it away or keeping it secret, he believes we need to give our doubts some light and air. Although it would be easy to think that those of you who choose to come back to church the Sunday after Easter are the ones whose faith is the strongest, and you do get a gold star for being here today, I suspect that for some of you what keeps you coming back week after week is a longing to have your doubts quelled and your questions answered which means you have a lot in common with the disciple, Thomas, who, although he is often referred to in a derogatory tone as Doubting Thomas, happens to be one of my heroes. Thomas does three notable things in this story, three things that we could all learn from. First of all, when the disciples lock themselves away behind closed doors Thomas is the only one who goes outside. Now, we don't know why. Maybe he drew the short straw and went for takeout. Maybe he had to get a message to a family member. Maybe he just needed some fresh air. Whatever the reason, when Jesus shows up offering the other disciples peace and the Holy Spirit and a glimpse of his crucifixion scars... Thomas misses it, but he ought to get credit for his refusal to stay behind closed doors. When Thomas returns and hears all about Jesus' visit, he does the second thing we can learn from. He is brave and vulnerable enough to openly express his disappointment and his doubt. Unless I see Jesus for myself, he says, I won't believe it. He could have kept those frustrations to himself. Instead, he shares them openly with his friends. Then there is the third remarkable thing Thomas does. After expressing his doubt, after he says unequivocally he will only believe when he sees the resurrected Jesus for himself, Thomas stays. And not only that, the other ten disciples let him Stay. They allow him to remain among them in their community even after he expresses his doubts. Some of you might be familiar with the book Children's Letters to God. In it, the author includes children's questions, comments, requests, and prayers that are addressed to God. It's full of cute little prayers like, Dear God, thank you for my baby brother, but what I asked for was a puppy. But it also contains prayers that hold nothing back. Like, Dear God, maybe Cain and Abel would not kill each other so much if they each had their own room. That works for me and my brother. And, dear God, instead of letting people die and having to make new ones, why don't you just keep the ones you've got now? And, dear God, are you real? Some people don't believe it. If you are real, you'd better do something quick. If you spend any time around children, you quickly discover that they love to ask questions of God hard questions. And not questions that come from deep theological study, but questions that come out of their real-life experience. When kids see or hear something they don't understand or something that contradicts what they have learned about God, they ask questions about it. They have no qualms expressing their doubt and confusion about God and about faith. And hopefully— They have adults in their lives who do for them what the disciples do for Thomas, who don't scold them or deflect the questions, but who pull them closer, trusting that with love and support of a community and with a little more time, some of those questions might eventually be answered. When we remain open to doubts and questions, whether our own or others, we imitate Jesus. Because one thing about Jesus becomes abundantly clear as you study the scriptures, Jesus never coerces people into believing in him. He doesn't twist people's arms with simple answers or threats. The choice is always up to us. Jesus has no trouble with us having our doubts, which is a good thing. Because if we allow ourselves to take Scripture seriously and to live fully and deeply, we will have questions and even doubts. We will encounter situations and circumstances that make no sense. We will have times when it feels like the promises of God do not apply to us. Sometimes we'll be the one in Thomas' shoes. We'll feel like everyone else saw a sign and we missed it. Other times we will be called to support someone like Thomas, someone struggling to claim God's promises, but who is willing to stay with us in a season of doubt. Last July, 29-year-old Rachel Cone Tuff died suddenly and unexpectedly of a pulmonary embolism after enjoying a magical day with her family at their lake house. In the days and weeks following her death, her parents said they felt adrift in a big, dark mass of water with no land in sight and nowhere to stand. Sometimes it seemed like the swells of grief would just push them under, and they weren't sure if they were going to come up again or if they even wanted to. During that time, they discovered they had to depend on others and on the grace and strength of God to carry them through, and they pointed to the love and kindness of their church as one of the things that got them through those early days and weeks. What makes their story somewhat unique is that Rachel's parents, Carla and Peter, had been the pastors of that church for over 20 years. A few days after Rachel's death, a church member sent them a note that said, I can only imagine that you've been shaken to the core. And as I woke this morning, I wondered who pastors turn to in times of need for spiritual guidance and comfort. It dawned on me that they turned to their congregation You have taught us, guided us, and supported us. It's our time to guide, support, and comfort you. We are here. I hope you can feel us. Lean on us. Lean on each other. Lean, lean, lean. Today, we welcome into our family 23 adult new members and 13 children. And we welcome them here just as they are, knowing that we are called to support them in their journeys of faith just as they are called to support us. So get to know them. Learn their names and their stories. Share your stories with them, for you never know when they will need to lean on you or you will need to lean on them. Thomas does one more thing in this passage that we need to take note of. Ultimately, when Jesus does appear to the disciples a second time, this time with Thomas there to see it, Thomas becomes the first person in John's gospel to make a profound affirmation of faith, declaring Jesus Lord and God, teaching us that sometimes... It is those who have wrestled the most with who God is and what faith is all about. Those who have been courageous enough to ask hard questions and voice their doubts. Who have leaned on the community when they couldn't stand up for themselves. Sometimes those are the very people who ultimately make the strongest, most profound declarations of faith on behalf of of us all. Amen.